Welcome to Logbook Memories, an aviation podcast about remembering and sharing our past flights. I'm David Allen, a student pilot. And I'm Michael Ladd, a private pilot. Guests on Logbook Memories look back through their pilot logbook to find a particularly interesting, adventurous, enjoyable, scary, or otherwise memorable flight. Then they come on here and share the story of that flight in their own words. Our next guest is ready to go, so let's mic him up. Our guest this week is a CFI, a CFII, an MEI, and he's got 2,200 hours or so in everything from a Cessna 140, that's a tail dragger for those of you who are following along, to a King Air, to various Cirrus aircraft as a CSIP, CSIP. And when he's not doing that stuff, he's he's flying right seat in a Lear 55, <laughs> Tom Frick, welcome no, to Logbook Memories. Fellas, how are you? Wonderful. Man, me we're too. great. Yes. You, Thanks you, for having me. You do a lot of flying, man. Um, you also, by the way, have uh, been a longtime volunteer with us at uh, Sun and Fun Radio. So y- you're getting around in the aviation community. Yeah, I have. And, you know, it was just a carryover from the business world that I was in before I started flying. Yeah, you know, I was uh, was in the business world and and realized the value of networking. And when I started flying, it, it just was a natural. I just, you know, I started. I met one person, then I met another. I went to. I was going to safety seminars. Um, it was actually Carl Valeri who got me um, to Sun and Fun Radio. I uh, went to a safety seminar that he had put on one night, and uh, when the seminar was over. I walked up to the front of the room, put my hand out, said, hey, my name's Tom. That was a great seminar. I really appreciate your time. And we got to talking, and one thing led to another. And he said, well, you know, I know this guy named Dave Shellbetter who could use some help from some volunteers over at Sun and Fun. He says, it'll get you in the show for free if, you, if, if he decides he can use you. And, <laughs> you know, the rest is history. I mean, I'm, I met Dave and, and went over and started working for him and, um, you know, like I said, it was just one thing after another after another. So um, I, I have uh, I went through the list of uh, people that you have interviewed through uh, th- so far, and uh, as I as I look at the website and look at all those interviews, it's uh, very fond memories of uh, just about everybody on that list. So Dave Shelbetter is one of these guys that is super involved in aviation and isn't a pilot and it sounds to me like and so am i by the way like that's <laughs> I, I relate to that a lot you know we both love to be involved in aviation tom it sounds like you were kind of getting involved in aviation a lot long before you became a pilot can you talk about that and you know you, you mentioned that you know the, the job that you had kind of got you into it um, you know, I got involved in aviation because my dad was a private pilot and he brought me along at a very young age, but it sounds like that wasn't your path at all. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started? Yeah. And, and actually, you know, I mean, flying for me was a dream as a, as a boy, you know, I mean, I used to just, and, and that was my, my dream as a, as a young, young child, even, um, you know, I used to build model airplanes, fighter jets, all sorts of stuff. And I used to hang them from monofilament from my room and put them in dog fighting positions and just, you know, dream about being able to go fly. And I wanted to get, grow older and I wanted to get into the air force and I wanted to go fly jets. And, um, 
you know, my life took a whole bunch of different turns that, uh, you know, that it, it, by the time I was old enough to do that, it was the furthest thing from my mind. It was so far off of my radar that it, it, it just wasn't even there. And I honestly, at that point, didn't know that I would even measure up to that. So uh, I went into the workforce and started working, just trying to support myself and, uh, you know, did the, did the deal. And, uh, I met my wife, we got married, we had kids, raised a family. And then, uh, when I was about, I don't know, I was in my forties. Um, she was running out of things to buy me for gifts and, uh, one year for Christmas. Um, well, actually it was for my birthday. She bought me a discovery flight and, uh, you know, that was, I don't know, she still thinks it was the biggest mistake she ever made, but you know, she got me this discovery flight and I got into an airplane and of course, you know, they put you in the left seat and you take off and you go fly for 20 minutes. Um, I did my discovery flight out of, uh, Albert Witted airfield in downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So you what a great place to oh, do was, a discovery was, flight too, man. That's a beautiful airport. Yeah. They take you off and you head out West and you go out to the Gulf of Mexico and you hang a left and go down the beach a little bit. And then they bring you back around back over Lake Magori and then down in back into the airport it takes about 20 minutes and I hit the ground and I got out of that plane and I was like oh, and that was it you know I mean I was like I was hooked hook line and sinker and you know they were like well hey we got this uh we got this solo package you know uh, it's a uh, two thousand dollars it'll give you 10 hours of um flight time in a plane 15 hours of instruction we'll throw in a headset and a logbook. what do you think and I was like I'll take it you know, and, and take that, my money, yeah, take my money, you know? So, and that, that set me on a path where I started, um, learning how to fly. And, uh, let's see, that discovery flight was in December of 2009. Um, I soloed on April 22nd of 2010. And of course everybody remembers their wow. solo date, okay. you know, it's like, um, sure. you know, and I can, Actually, I can I describe don't. and see that, uh, that, that flight is just locked into my brain and will be the rest of my life. It's just like the very first time you ever operate an aircraft on your own. Uh, there's nothing like it. There's no other way to describe it. Most people that have soloed understand it. And those who don't won't until they do. What, uh, what did you learn to fly in? What did you solo in? Um, I soloed in a uh, Cessna 172 with a G1000. As a matter of fact, I did um, nice. all nice. of my primary training and all of my instrument training in the G1000. I didn't fly a dialed aircraft until I actually had my instrument. <laughs> yeah. Well, what and was it was that because, transition you know, like going backwards to something with, uh, with the steam gauges? It was weird. It really was because the only place that I had flown dialed aircraft was in the simulator. I had a, I had a desktop simulator at home. I had a Flight Sim 10. You know, so I had, um, I had the, I got the SciTech, you know, yoke and rudders and throttle quadrants and, you know, and I did all of, you know, I was doing approaches and all sorts of stuff in dials on the simulator, but I never flew an airplane with one until I had my instrument. And it, and it was what, it was really weird. Cause I was like the, actually he, um, was the, um, chief pilot of the flight school that I was at and, uh. You know, I, I told him, I says, you know, I'm going to go rent this airplane. I says, I'm kind of nervous about it. He goes, why? He says, you're going backwards for God's sakes. He says, you know how to fly all that G whiz stuff out there. And you're worried about this little thing with the dials on it. I says, yeah, I just want to make sure that I'll be able to see everything. Okay. And when I took it out and flew it and came back up, it, it just all hit me like, holy crap, I do know how to do this. You know, it, it works. It really does. Huh. 
So as an instructor, do you think it's harder to go from steam gauges to a G1000 or something with a, you know, with a, with a glass cockpit, or is it harder to go from a glass cockpit to a steam gauge setup? I would say that it was harder to go from the steam gauges to the glass. And um, I'll tell you why, because I had, uh, I've had lots of people who have come to me for, because I did all of my training in the G1000, I got pretty good at it. You know, I'm, I'm pretty proficient with the G1000. So um, I had lots of people who would come to me once I was an instructor for that specific transition, because there was lots of guys out there that that's all they'd ever flown is the dialed stuff. And they go in and see a glass cockpit and it just, it just fried their noodles, you know, so um, the, the first flight school that I was at, I was very um, lucky because we had a, um, um, a Redbird flight simulator, so I could put him in the simulator and we could play with all the buttons before we actually got in the plane. But I, I, had, a good, I had a good transition um, uh, syllabus set up to get people more comfortable with it, what to look at, and how to slowly start digging in there and start understanding menus and stuff. You know, I mean, yes, there's a little bit of... Um, um, a, a technical aspect to it that you probably have to bring with you. But, um, you know, these days, I mean, if you can operate a cell phone, you could probably operate the G1000. You know, you can operate a smartphone. You, you could probably do it. Is there a difference between the different glass cockpits as far as uh, like a transition from steam gauges to an Aspen to a... Oh, yeah, there is. A, a Garmin to sure. a... I to mean, is there a huge... I mean, if you learn one, can you learn the other to, one? Yeah, to the Aspens. Yeah, there's, there is there's there there is a lot of um, um, differences between them, but there's also a lot of similarities as well. The way that the the menu structures that are usually built in those planes, um, the way... and And what you're using it for. I mean... There's only, there's only so many ways to skin a cat, you know? I mean, yes, there's different ways, but there's only so many ways. So, you know, after a while, they start, you know, they start following a logical order, if you will, you know? Because it's like, you know, there's, there's logical orders of what you're going to do in an airplane, right? I mean, there's, there's a pre-flight, there's a taxi out, you're going to take off, there's, you know, climb out, cruise, you know, descent, you know, approach, landing, you know, after landing, and, and all of that is logically sequential so that the way they build um these um computerized avionics suites follow those kind of guidelines you know what i'm saying so they, they start becoming yep. logical after a while okay well very cool it sounds to me like um you know you you probably have to teach people differently when you're when you're teaching uh somebody from a cirrus or when you were teaching somebody in a cirrus if you if they were coming from a glass cockpit environment or if they were coming from a from a steam gauge environment to to the cirrus cuz all cirri that i know of are uh, glass cockpits. Some of the older ones use a different panel. All the new stuff of course uses G1000. Is it so. really cirri? I had no mm. idea, but nope. yeah, it's, that's what I'm going it's with. It's Cirrus. <laughs> it's Cirrus it's is Cirrus. the singular and the plural. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to ask that question of one of one of their um, higher <laughs> higher ups. Awesome that you actually, did. it was one of the owners really? of the, one of the owners of the company. I actually asked him that question if that was, and he said <laughs> no. So it's not Cirruses; it's Cirrus, like it's there's Cirrus. Cessnas and yeah. Pipers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just Cirrus. That's uh-huh. good. 
Yeah. For well, Tom, we had you on because we want to hear about one of your adventures and, uh, you know, one of your logbook memories. And you have a, a rather harrowing one to share with us. And I, I know nothing about it other than what ended up happening. So at, at the end, I'd, I'd kind of like to know the, the whole story. So take us take us through it. Sure. So um, this. Um well, let's let's go back a little bit. So I went through and got all of my ratings. Um, I got my um, my CFI rating in uh, 2015, I believe it was, and um, I had my um, CFI rating for two weeks. I got it on September 1st. Um, the and it wasn't even that long. It wasn't even two weeks. I got my it was 10 days. So the day was September 11th, um, 2015. And um, I had agreed to fly to Sarasota. So I was in St. Pete Clearwater International Airport and um, agreed to meet um, Jason Shepard in Sarasota. We were supposed to do some filming and um, do some talking about um, some projects that were coming up with um, his online ground school. Um, uh, I've been working for Jason for, well, at least since then, since 2015. So... Um, we, uh, I got up that morning. I went out and uh, pre-flighted an airplane. Um, this was an airplane. It was a 172 that was on the line. It had dials. I had never flown it ever before. Um, it was one of those airplanes that was sure. one of the quote-unquote cheaper models that was sitting on the line. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a rental aircraft. It was an older model. I think it was an India model. And um, wow. I got in it, did a pre-flight. Um, and um, what I found when I was doing my pre-flight that morning, which was quite a thorough one, I mean, I had gone through um, the night before and, you know, done all of my, my research. I, I, I looked at everything about this plane. I went through and looked at maintenance logs and, you know, went through my aviates and got all the paperwork and made sure everything was good because it was the first time I was ever getting in this airplane. So I got up and did a pre-flight. Um, the only thing I found during my pre-flight when I was sumping the, the tanks, I came up with just a, a little bit of water down in the bottom of, of one of the cups. So dumped it out and redid it again, shook the wings, did it again, did it again, come back nice and clear. And it's like, okay, I think we're good to go here. So I took off, um, started heading towards Sarasota. Uh, I was uh, talking to Tampa. They put me over to Sarasota's tower I was, I don't know. Now, now were you by yourself? I'm yeah, sorry. I, I was all alone. Were you yeah, by I yourself? was all alone. Yeah, okay. I, did, I, didn't, I didn't take anybody with me. Um, so, and I basically, um, uh, I was, I don't know, maybe three or four miles away from the airport and was starting to descend. I could see the runway, um, but I was still a ways away from it. And um, I was at, I don't know, just, just about a uh, thousand feet, 1100 feet. And, um, the engine quit. It just freaking stopped. And at a thousand feet and I'm looking and like, okay, I don't have the energy to get to that runway. Um, I wish I could say that, you know, the very first thought in my mind was my ABC. So I went right immediately to, um, my emergency. So my airspeed, best place to land checklist, you know, um, and, and get through those things. But that wasn't the very first, um, word out of my mouth was a very loud expletive. I won't repeat it here, but it was, that, that's what I did is I just screamed 
I cussed really loud and, and then it kicked in, you know, it was like, and, and, and I did, and it's like, I'm, I'm pitching for my airspeed and I got that. And now I'm looking around for my best place to land and I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. And there it is. There's the highway. I can see the highway. Um, there's people stopped at the stoplight. Um, it was highway 301. It was Friday morning on September 11th. And, um, the very next thing that I looked for, the very next thing that I looked for, actually, when I saw the highway and I saw that it was open, um, I looked for power lines. Power lines. Yeah, immediately. Uh, I had remembered, you know, that highways are not good, power lines. But I could see the power lines. I could see the lines going across On holding the, the stoplights that were holding back the traffic that was giving me this strip of concrete to land on. And I went, Wide okay, open. well, if I can see those wires, I'd be able to see more of them. And I couldn't see any of them. And I thought, all right, that's where I'm going. And I made my decision and went down. And it was like... It was like this non-eventful landing. Um, I used the inertia of the plane, which at this point, the engine's not running. I'm a glider, you know? So, I mean, I still had power, so I was dropping flaps and came in and landed. Used the inertia of the plane to get it off the highway so I wouldn't be blocking up traffic for hours and hours. And uh, basically got out of the plane. Pulling to a gas station, didn't you? No, it wasn't a gas station. I was off on the side (laughs) of the road. Um, But, yeah, it uh, it was quite the fiasco after that. So at the end of the day, you know, I mean, um, the, the thing that, that, that impressed that, that was impressed on my brain after that, 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 uh, that really caught my attention was, is that the training works, all the training that I had been through to that point to how to deal with an emergency is what made that a non-event because literally I didn't, I didn't hurt me. I didn't hurt the plane. I didn't hurt anything on the ground. It was, it was just a landing on a highway. That happened to be on a September 11th, which that's what got all the news crews out there. Sure. I'm sure it did. Oh, yeah. It was a fiasco. But, you know, it is what it is. How much time was it between you having this engine quit and and you were taxiing, you know, coasting off the side of this highway? Mm. You know, David, I, I don't even know if I could answer that. It was... It was probably not that long. It was, it was probably not that long. I mean, think about it. I mean, have, well, I don't know. At your point in training, you probably have not. I mean, and once you start doing commercial, you start doing um, uh, power off 180s. So, you know, I mean, that, that takes a good minute or so to get from out of the pattern. And, you know, so I'm guessing it was probably a couple minutes from the time that I, I lost the engine till I was on the ground. Did it feel a little bit longer? Oh, I, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm totally guessing because it's like, I have really no conception of, of, of time throughout any, I can, I can see all the events in my mind. I know what happened. I can still see myself looking at the highway. I mean, it's pretty fresh. In walk my mind. Even it. five yeah. years ago, I still remember it as clear as day. Wow. But, but time really didn't mean anything to me at that point. And did the engine just quit and seize up, or did it give you any warning, like it was getting ready to quit, and did it windmill? I mean, what what, what was yeah, the, it, what it was, was happening in front of you while you were trying to troubleshoot so, this? Well, it was it was starting to spit and sputter. Um, it, it it spit and sputtered just a little bit. Now remember, I'm I'm configuring for landing. I was close enough to the airport that I was already descending in, and you know I was already talking to the tower. So um, you know I was. I don't remember if I'd already been cleared to land. I might have been, but either way, I was I was already talking to the tower. I was I was close that close to the airport. I just wasn't in range to make it to the runway. Hmm. So, um, 
at that point, it spit. You know, I, I remembered it. It was, it was, I was in a low RPM situation, and it, it spit and sputtered. What they finally determined was is that it was probably um, carburetor icing that, that uh, shut the engine off. But, you know, like I said, when no I got... No kidding. Well, when, when I shut the airplane down, see, that, that was the point that we couldn't just couldn't come to any agreement on. Because of the, the um, series of events, the way that they happened, there, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't emphatically remember if I had turned the carb heat on or not. Now, when I landed the plane, I shut everything off. I mean, I shut everything off. I was shutting gas off. I was shutting, I shut off all the gas valves. I shut off every switch I could find in the thing. And I probably would have shut off the, the carb heat <laughs> as well. That's my guess. For so, sure. You know, so officially that's, that's what they ended up calling it is that they, they believe that it was probably some type of carb icing and that's what uh, would have killed that engine. So if you if you had a carb icing situation and couldn't find anything else, did they just how how'd they get the airplane out? Did they tow it out or did they yeah. just take back off again and no, re- actually, return to the we, airport? We, we actually we were close enough to the airport. They just they they brought a tug out and they hooked it up to the airplane and dragged it down the road. I actually have pictures of a Cessna one seventy two going over a set of railroad tracks. It's a pretty awesome picture. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is fantastic. So um, you're talking to Tower, and did you get a t- did, did you have time? You know, being configured for landing low and slow, thousand feet above ground. Did you have time to even tell Tower, "Hey, sorry, I'm 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 not going to make the runway." Yes, I I did, and then um, I actually was. I was close enough to the airport; the Tower could still hear me when I when when I pulled the thing off the thing. I says. I'm on Highway 301, and I could see the sign of the cross street. And I said, and here's where I am. I'm shutting the plane off. Please send somebody. And they said, somebody's on this the way. This is where you're going to find me. Yep. So they, they came right out. You know, so I had. Wow. But there was. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was you know, police and emergency vehicles. And then, of course, you know, airport ops, they, they came out. And they were the ones that were. But even uh, the people in cars had to be some amazing looks. Yeah. Um, I have I mean, a. Before I have anyone a, else was there, you just. I have a I picture, just imagine. <laughs> I have a picture that a friend of mine actually texted to me. He drove by the scene that morning and took a picture of the airplane and he didn't know it was me, but he texted me. He says, Hey, you know anything about this? And I just texted him back, uh, I might. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I might be the guy who knows the well, most yes. about it, as a matter yeah, of fact. I, I might know I might know something about it. Wow. Wow. Uh, all right. So, so you're an instructor, uh, uh, 10, 10 days fresh as an instructor. But as an instructor, you've got some experience. You've had time to understand this stuff. So like you said, your training kicks in. Um, I, I would hope that I would hope that as a as a private pilot, let's say let's say you're a ten day private pilot, that the outcome would have been the same. But experience does speak for something. So mm-hmm. I guess my question is. Looking back now, five years later, would you have done anything different than at any, at any point in the pre-flight, in the research, in the actual flight, in the execution, um, in in the in the during the emergency? You know, what was the big lesson that you learned, and would you have done anything differently if you had to do that again today? It's All other things being equal. Yeah, it's an excellent question, David. And I have played that question over in my head over and over and over again. Um, I am a very 
diligent individual, I, I, especially when it comes to flying. Always have been. And I was diligent about that day. It, it just is what it is, you know. Um, and that's what the conclusion I finally came to. So the answer to your question is, is no, there wasn't anything different that I could do. It, it just was one of those things, you know. Um, we're dealing with a, a, a mechanical device. Mechanical devices are subject to failure. That, it's, it's just that simple, you know. Um, I don't know that there was anything better that I could have done myself. I, I looked and looked over again, you know, did it, was it something in my pre-flight? Was it something in the way that I, you know, researched the aircraft? Um, you know, there was, you know, there was lots of Monday morning quarterbacks afterwards. There were other CFIs that I talked to and went, oh yeah, well this and that. And then, you know, everybody's got an idea about something and, and there was good information and good feedback that I was getting back. But at the time, you know, as, as a, as a pilot who goes to rent an aircraft, cause that's what it was. I was using it basically for personal use for the day. I went and rented an aircraft, got in it, did the things that I needed to do, um, and, and, and had an engine failure. You know, it, it just, it, it happens to these things. It's one of the things that can happen to an airplane, especially a single engine airplane. So that said, that's why we train the way that we do. That's why we learn all of these, you know, nice acronyms and all these things that help us in an emergency. If, um, while during your training, you're not getting good training about what to do during an emergency, you're, you're, you're somebody's selling you short. You're not getting the training that you deserve. You know, because that's that that all of the flight training that I've ever received and everything that I ever give covers worst case scenario in in, in all situations. That's what we do is we push mm -hmm. the airplane to its extremes so we know exactly what it's going to do from end to end. You know, and, and the pilot, I mean, the student pilot. Exactly, we 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 push the pilot push end them. to end so we know how the, what they're going to do, how they're going to react. You know, so um, my training, all through my private and instrument, you know, I had CFIs that constantly, it used to just drive me absolutely batty that, you know, all of a sudden they go, oh, these darn engines, and they pull the power, and there you are, and you know, okay, now I got to go through an emergency checklist, and you would just do it over and over and over again. But it became so routine that, you know, that was the blessing out of that training, because it was done so much to me like that, and I do it a lot to my students, you know, I constantly, I'm pulling the power, it's like, okay, what are you going to do, fly boy, you know, and, and show me, show me what you got for your, for an emergency, and, and it's because if something like that happens, you've got that in your bag, you've got that in the toolbox, like I said, I, I had an emergency, I lost an engine, I put the airplane on the ground, and, and it was a good outcome. You know, and, and I blame the training that I got or I'm grateful to the training that That's I got. Awesome. How does that sound? So good. Like, it, I, yeah, yeah, it's excellent. Yeah. Like it makes me so happy. And here's the thing, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very, very slowly going through private pilot training and every time my instructor has pulled the power on me. M Mike has had some interesting scenarios <laughs> recently that he's actually shared in yeah, previous last, episodes. Yeah, year. yeah, but every time the instructor's pulled the power on me, I've been at at least twenty five hundred feet, sometimes thirty five hundred feet, and sure. I never, not once, has thirty five hundred feet been enough time for me to feel like I could save the airplane. And you pulled this off. I, yeah. I dare say flawlessly at a thousand feet in a landing configuration where the engine just didn't give you any warning at all. Just sputter, sputter, boom, I'm done. Yep. And you're, you're already low and slow, you know? So, um, I, when I approach anything with f 
flight training, I look at this and I say, man, I'd really like to master this I because I want... I've seen what my instructor can do. I've I've watched him take something that I've done very badly and him recover it, or I've watched him just flawlessly and effortlessly put the aircraft into a place in in space, vertical three-way space without and do it do it in such a way that just makes it look effortless and perfect when i'm struggling just to maintain altitude during a steep turn sure and so my my goal has always been i want to get to where i can command the aircraft the flying machine into the spot that i want it to be every time without question sure and let me tell you Emergency landings, emergency procedures with you know simulated engine failure. Sure, I suck at them. Like I just, it. I always feel like I'm just, I'm not panicking, but I'm right. feeling like, oh gosh, okay, what's the next thing I have to do? And then I think about that for four or five seconds. Well, I just lost two hundred feet. Right. Yep. So and, that, and that's yeah, why it it, just, and that's why great it has job. to be that. That's why it has to be that ingrained. Because it has to be like it's it's just a natural thing that okay this is you know I'm going to go into my emergency checklist you know, and it's A B C D E you know airspace airspeed best place to land checklist declare and execute you know. So and I yeah that's exactly what we were taught too. Yep. So the the the, um what I used to do with my students when I had the blessing of having a, a Redbird simulator you know I would put them in that and I would do. What happened to me? I would get it down to a thousand feet and I would shut the engine off on them. And in a simulator, you can do that. I'd shut it off and walk away and say, show me what you got, you know? And, you know, some of them would react very well and they would go through the checklist that I gave them. And some of them would like take those four to five second little chunks to figure out what they were doing. And now all of a sudden they've lost, you know, attitude or they've (coughs) lost airspeed or whatever else. And the outcome is not pretty. You know, well, not- that's the other thing is when I'm doing this, we're usually over a very rural area and we knock it off. We knock off the emergency uh, procedure practice at 500 feet AGL where y- you were at a thousand feet. That's all you had. And you're over, you know, a populated area right. with not a lot of options. No, there wasn't. Talk it, about that. Yeah. It, 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 well, it was, well, come on. Well, He's got like eight airports within like a half a mile. Yeah, they are. I mean, around Sarasota, but uh, but it's. I'm kidding. You're right. It, it, you're it's, you're right. You are right. There are a lot of airports around. Not a lot of options from a thousand feet, and and because Correct. it was a, a city area, I mean, it was it's densely populated. So that's really my only option was roads. There were no fields. You know, I mean, um, where I'm living up here, where I'm living right now, it's like it's nothing but fields. You know, I fly around here, and it's like because I I I'm constantly looking constantly looking for you know a place to land that that was another thing that got ingrained in me you know it's like always understanding where you are and that situational awareness and you know if it happened right this second what are you going to do and i'm not going to freak out i'm going to go okay i'm going to land over there so i'm, I'm just kind of curious so these uh the, the the redbird simulators that you do with your students at times do you put the exact same scenario in place yeah <laughs> <laughs> No, and you know what? That's that's kind of interesting. No, I never did. I never did put it, put anybody in that same same uh, situation. I usually put them like you know over whatever airport where we were training out of or, or close to. You know, I mean in our own practice area. Okay, I'm just making sure. 
you know, so I was I was teaching out of uh, St. Pete Clearwater National and out of Clearwater Air Park. Mm-hmm. You know, so Pinellas County in Florida is is very densely populated, very densely populated. But yeah, I remember well, we seeing you out there so, one day. You know, our, our practice area is out <laughs> over the ocean. So your your choice is either to hit a house or go swimming. Hey, how <laughs> difficult is there a difference as far as training? Because I'm I'm in the middle of well, not mountains, but you know, big hills um, yeah. in Tennessee. But as far as, you know, we don't have water. We have rivers and creeks, cricks. Cricks. But when you're practicing out over the ocean in the bay side over there, is there, I mean, is there, are there life jackets? Are you, do you have a uh, uh, inflatable, I mean, is there a whole different aspect of training out no, there? not really, because most of our training areas, we stay within glide distance of, of shore. So... Okay. Our normal, you know, the, the place that we would bail out to is the beach. You know, there's, it's, it's beaches okay. all the way up and down and, and big strips of sand. Um, you know, there's pedestrians, you know, there's, there's a lot of people on the beaches. So that, that, that creates an issue there. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff and, and I've, I've had, I've talked to pilots that have had, that have lost engines in this area. Um, I have a real good friend of mine. He's actually a, he's a, um, a DME. He's a, he's a medical examiner. So, um, he, um, or an AME, I'm sorry. He, uh, he had to put a 152 into, uh, was it a Boca Ciega Bay? I guess it is. And, and same thing, his engine started, he lost a couple cylinders. So you lose two cylinders out of a four cylinder engine. It starts, you know, running pretty badly and it finally a little rough. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and but you know i asked him i got to i got to you know i went to go see him one day and I, I got to talking to him and i says do you mind me asking you questions about this and he goes no absolutely not so i said you know what happened and he, and he described to me the you know that he lost the engine and he was trying to get back to albert witted so he was trying to go back around the southern tip of the county to stay out over the water so he wouldn't be over houses if the engine did die he already knew he was in right. he, he was in trouble but you know he was trying to get it back to the airport and it finally just quit so he finally decided he had to put it down in the water and i asked him i says what would you do differently he says well when i went into land he says i'm in a 152 and he says he says, um, when I land that thing on, on, uh, on ground, he says, I very rarely use flaps. He says, that plane will fly at like 35 miles an hour. So it's like, he says, when you've got <laughs> 5,000 feet of runway, he says, I don't use flaps. He says, I just slow the thing way down, set it down on the ground and, and go back to my hangar. He says, when I landed it, he says, I could have gotten it a lot slower. And he says, the reason that I would have wanted it that way, he says, is, I wasn't expecting what the plane was going to do when it touched the water. And what he did is, is he slowed the thing down and he went to go land. And as soon as those, the mains caught the water, it flipped the entire airplane over. I mean, just flipped it completely over. Sure. And it, it ended up cutting his forehead. It slammed his head into the dashboard of the plane. And he said he was, he woke up and saw green water and, and, you know, he just followed the bubbles and he was in about eight feet of water and got out and then some boat came by and rescued him and got him out of there. But he said, you know, had I, if I had to do it over again, he said, I would have used my flaps and gotten the plane even slower so that when it did flip over, it might not have been as violent as it was. So there I've, now I've got wisdom, you know, right? A smart guy learns from his mistakes. A wise guy learns from the mistakes of others. I'm, I carry that with me now. You know? yeah. It's like, if I got to put it down in water, I'm going to do everything I can to get that plane as slow as I possibly can get it. Mm-hmm. 
I always say, learn from others' mistakes because you're never going to live long enough to make them all yourself. So, yeah, that's awesome. And that's what this hanger flying is all about, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, and and, and that's, you know, quite honestly why I don't mind talking about this with you guys because it's, it's something that others can learn from, you know? I mean, who knows? Some, I've, I've talked to some people and they tend to judge and they want to, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking is great and, and it, it helps us. But as pilots, you know, the rest of the world looks just like a bunch of sick people because we look at airplane accidents. We, we look at NTSB reports and we look at things that, and read you them. know, yeah. what, what other people did. But it's not a form of being morbid. It's a form of um, education. I want to learn from somebody else, you know. And that's how aviation has gotten as safe as it is because generations and generations of people trying to get safe as they possibly can and learning from other people's mistakes. I've been, I've been on a kick lately about the space program, which I I grew up near um, where I live right now. We're just about 30 miles South of Cape Canaveral, but I was born after the Apollo program had come to an end. So I didn't get to see any of the Saturn V rockets or see the moon landings. I was too young for all that stuff, but I still love it. Like I love watching that. And it may be apocryphal, I don't really know, but I've heard that the the Apollo 1 disaster where the, the astronauts, uh, uh, Grissom, uh, White, and Chaffee were killed was maybe, as, as tragic as it was, was maybe one of the best things that happened to the program because... They learned so much they, from it. It forced them to disassemble that thing and evaluate processes and really get deep deep into what's going on where are the where are the procedural problems where are the the um process problems where's the where's the where's the problems with just the mindset of the companies that are that are and the people that are running these companies that are behind the the putting this whole thing together in this short amount of time they they had nine years to get a man on the moon you know so um it was it was such you know that the, there's a scene I, again this is just a movie there was a scene in apollo 13 where the sun is asking uh jim lovell did you know did they fix the door oh yeah uh, and he goes oh yeah yeah they fixed yeah. it you know and I, they fixed a lot of things that. And, yeah. and I, again, that's that, that, I don't know if that conversation ever happened, but it really drove home the idea that we looked at it. We looked at what happened and we said, this is why, th- and none of these things was the cause. It was all of it together and it allowed us to come together and go, okay, this is how we fix this systematically. Right. And so aviation is a lot like that. We look at problems and we go, well, this isn't a single issue. This is this is this and right. this and this and they, you put right. all those things together and that's a recipe. That's sure. a recipe for a situation that's not pleasant. So, right. um, a, a friend of mine, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, it's like, um, you know, I work for Jason and his his thing is the links in the chain. You know, he's done seminar after seminar after and and, and talked about where do you break that link? Where, what what link in the chain is is the one that that makes something go bad. If you if you ever get a chance to see his um, what is it the uh, the the um, the one that he did on the John F Kennedy crash, you know it, it's it's mm, right. quite sobering and and it's it's 
to all of those points that you just made. Oh, Jason did one on that? Yes. Yep. I didn't know did that. A, he did a complete analysis on the on the JFK Jr. Um, plane crash. It's it's quite eye-opening. Okay. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you just look at the chain of events through that whole entire thing, you, you'll you'll enjoy it. I think I think it's something you can find on YouTube. I, I'm definitely going to look for it because now I'm really intrigued. What's interesting, I think, about the chain of events is that you can have a bad situation. You can have this thing go wrong. Step step. This one thing in this area goes wrong. One thing in this area goes wrong. One thing in that area goes wrong. Five or six different things. And if any one of those in the chain doesn't exist, then the situation doesn't occur. Correct. But it's only because all of those little things lined up, those stars lined up, boom, mm. you had this perfect scenario. So, yep, yep indeed. Well, we have it's, to be it's, diligent. We have to be diligent. And like to, to your point that you said in the very beginning, training works. It does. It does. I'm living proof. <laughs> yes, you are. And that's the thing is you are living proof. Like you survived because you, you, you made the right choices. Um, I, I, I am a, I don't want to sound morbid. I'm super interested in hearing the story when somebody has a bad event like that and sure. they can come out and say, like one of my favorite movies of all time is Sully because we got to uh-huh. see, you know, into what happened in the in in the in the um, the miracle on the Hudson? You know what what actually went down in, from from their from their standpoint. Um, some very dear friends of ours who were actually guests on this show uh, coming in the future. Uh, by the time you hear this, maybe in the past, uh, <laughs> they they actually had an incident recently where they had a forced landing situation and um, it shook them up. And it was very hard on them, but the fact of the matter is, they did they did it flawlessly. They executed what they were and, supposed to do, yeah. and did a great job. And the airplane was safe. The people were safe. And yeah, it sucked to be sitting there facing, hey, this this may or may not go well. But the fact of the matter is, they went to their training, and I praised them publicly. I'm like, you guys did a great job. I'm so proud to know pilots who take a situation that just sucks and say here's here's how we're going to we're just we're just going to do our thing we're just going to do the thing and when you do the thing the right thing comes out like yep. that's that's what i love about aviation is it's a challenge and and to jason shepherd's tagline a good pilot is always learning and when you are learning you are getting better. A private pilot certificate is a license to learn. And then you go get your instrument. Then you get your commercial. Then you go get a tailwheel endorsement. Then you go get seaplane rating. Then you go get some kill proofing through some acro training or some upset training. Like do something to better yourself. Push the envelope. Push the envelope of the aircraft to where you know what the aircraft is capable of and push the envelope of the pilot so that you know how to manipulate the aircraft and do what you want with it. But not in that order. (laughs) Yeah. After my instrument rating, I'm going to get my seaplane rating. Yeah, I, I, it's still on my bucket list. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to that time where I can book me the weekend over at Jack Brown's over in Winter Haven and, and uh, exactly. you know, go, get it, go get it done. I think I'm going to do it like a weekend before uh, Sun and Fun, maybe next year. Well, Not 21, but, 20, but 2022. They're, they're usually booked out a good long time. It's hard to get in there. That's oh, why yeah. it's like... Trying to get the but no, that's 
that's kind of my goal. My uh, my with my IFR, I'm going to get myself a new headset. Not not the ASAs that I've been using for the last yeah. eight years. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny then, how, uh, how we do, as pilots uh, we we do that we gifts for ourselves as we start getting ratings. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. my first one was a then. Garmin uh, 496. <laughs> yep. There you go. Yeah. So on a on a on a little little happier note, just that you were talking about the sh- um, by about the the shuttle program and Cape Canaveral and all that. So that's another one that comes out of my logbook. I finally got to do that. Actually, it was just within the past eight months, and I oh, got to fly really? the shuttle landing facility. Yeah. So I nice. took off out of Lakeland with our friend Carl Valeri. Uh, the two of us got in a plane, and uh, I, he says he's like, "We need to fly." Okay, let's go fly. It's like, "What do you want to do today?" I says, "I want to go fly the shuttle landing facility." And he says cool let's go and we did we got up and um it was it was a great experience it was um really easy to do we actually talked to a controller at lakeland tower who used to work there and when we told him that we were taken off to go there man he hooked us up with orlando orlando put us right over to the shuttle landing facility and they were just they were just you know thrilled to death to have us there you know they were like Y'all come back. You, you you want to go around a pattern a couple times? You want to, you know, so they were they were willing to let us hang out there for a little <laughs> while and and fly around. So I mean, I got amazing pictures of you know the the vehicle assembly building. You could see the launch pads. You could see you know all the SpaceX stuff that's out there now. And it's like it was just what a great experience that was. So that's that's another highlight out of my wow. notebook and, and I, that, a, a recent one. That's on my that's on I my bucket encourage- list. I encourage any pilot who flies on the space coast to do that. It is the easiest thing to do. It, it is. is um, if the tower is closed, you just talk to Orlando Approach. Yep. And if the tower is open, Orlando Approach will hand you right off to them. Yep. Um, sometimes they'll tell you stay 500 feet ab- above yep. west of the center line. Sometimes they'll say just don't touch down. Right. It just it, yeah, it's, it's you know whatever it is on the controller it's that you get. Yeah. Super easy. Yeah. We, we, we got the guy who said 200, we got the 200 foot guy. He said, yeah, right. code for a low approach. Do not go, do not go below 200 feet. And it's like, okay, we can do that. And it takes a while. We were in a, we were in a Piper, we were in a little Piper Archer and flying the length of that 15,000 foot runway. It, it's, it's just staggering. It's forever. Just, it blows your mind. Is what a big piece of concrete that is. It, it's awesome. Well, it's, it's, it's. What is it? It's 15,000 feet long, so three miles almost. And it's yep. like 300 feet, feet wide. Yeah. Like it's it is super yep. wide. You can't, yeah. you can't see the yeah. other sides of the runway. Yeah. And you can't see the edges. I mean. Yeah, you get a Piper Cub out there, you could land on the thing sideways. With twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Probably easily. He could land and take that off again. actually do a 5K <laughs> on that. Yeah. Yes, you could. <laughs> They actually do a 5K on that runway uh, every year. At least they used to do a 5K on that runway every year. And the 5K went across the runway, down the length of it, and then back across. And that was it. Like, that was the entire 5K. Yep. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, very, very cool experience. I highly recommend uh, anybody who's flying on the Space Coast go do it. A lot of people will fly from south to north along the runway, do a teardrop, and then come back and fly north to south. Mm -hmm. It's just a super easy way to get, like, two paths down the runway and yeah just go for it i say but that doesn't count in the logbook does it no you can't you can't count it as a a, it's not a landing right yeah you can't can't land it no you can't land it (laughs) so yeah you don't get to write it in your in your logbook that you were there yeah besides an en route yeah it's part of your route yeah exactly 
But dude, you get to tell people like, just like what I'm doing right now. It's a story that you just can't keep inside. You know, it's like, I got to fly the shuttle landing facility. That is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very cool. And on the uh, south of the shuttle landing facility, you, you can't, I don't think you can fly over it, but you can actually see the uh, visitor center with all the rockets sitting out there in the rocket garden. Yeah, the so rocket garden. It's just a cool experience to do for sure. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. Well, good. So, uh, Tom, you're you're doing a lot of things these days. You are still doing some instructing. Uh, you're flying the Lear 55. Uh, where can people find uh, out about what you're doing and follow along? You know that I'm also a podcaster as well. So, um, you know, I'm one of the co-hosts on the Stuck Mike Avcast. So uh, we're up to, oh, I don't know. I forgot how many episodes we got now, but it's, it's a bunch. Um, a few more than tw- us. Yeah, we publish twice a month, and I, I think... Oh, I don't know. He's got to be up somewhere. I think we were like, I don't know if it's a few hundred. I, I forgot what the episode number was that we were even on. So that's it. got to be at least wanna, 300. Yep. Um, you know, we get, we get some pretty cool guests in every now and then too. But um, yeah, that's how you can keep up with me. Okay. Uh, All right, Tom. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking some time to share that with us. Uh, great story. Absolute and, pleasure. You know, just it just really goes to show that that training is important. We we train the way we fly so that we can fly the way we train. And and at the end of the day, n- nobody nobody wants to have an incident. They just want to go out and enjoy the sky and when we do you know on the, on the occasions the very rare occasions that we do have an incident uh training gets us ready for that thing so thanks so much for sharing that with us that was a lot of fun it was my pleasure man and it was uh nice to hang out with you guys tonight all right well we'll catch you guys next time thanks so much for being a, a listener on our show and if you haven't left us a rating on itunes that really helps us out we really Definitely. appreciate that uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to share this with your friends. Um, we like doing this stuff, but uh, it really helps us when you when you get the word out for us. So we will talk to you on the next episode coming up soon. See ya. Please. Thanks so much for listening to Logbook Memories. If you'd like to share a memory from your logbook, drop us an email to stories at logbookmemories.com. That's stories at logbookmemories.com. And since we are just starting out, it would mean the world to us if you left a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you really want to help us out, maybe write a short review telling the world how awesome we are. Don't forget to share us with your friends. We'll catch you on the next episode of Logbook Memories.